Grace and peace to you all. Will you join me in a prayer for illumination? Holy and gracious God, you are alive. You are alive in this place and in each one of us, and you are alive in these ancient words. So let them guide us, let them shape us, and let your spirit be upon us so that we may be touched and changed and sent forth by the message of scripture you have today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our gospel lesson for this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Then Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat there with his disciples. And the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw this large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for all these people? He said this to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up all the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten was 12 basketfuls. When the people saw this sign that Jesus had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's not enough. That's how Philip responds after calculating how much it would cost to feed 5,000 people on just a moment's notice. There's not enough. That's how Andrew responds after the disciples' search for food yields a meager result. There's not enough. That's maybe how we respond when we think about the upcoming exam in chemistry or getting our kids to all their activities or the major project at work or tackling the mental health crisis in America or any number of things that just seem too difficult, too costly, too painful. There's not enough. And yet, in today's story, there was enough. There was more than enough. So what happened? Well, what happened was a miracle. A miracle, simply put, is 
when the thing you did not expect to happen, the thing you knew could not happen, happens. And this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, must have been a big one because it's the only miracle story to be recorded in all four of our Gospels. I have this bad habit of letting YouTube videos run in the background at the end of the day when I'm trying to wind down. And it's just really inane stuff. A pet shop owner unboxing a new delivery of fish, um, think pieces on Star Trek trivia. And of course, the YouTube algorithm kind of slips things in there for me to check out. So recently, I've been watching clips of this show called Fool Us. And in this, the two magicians, Penn and Teller, invite other illusionists onto their stage uh, to perform their tricks. And Penn and Teller try to determine how they did it. And they can usually figure it out. They're really good. So I imagine if Penn and Teller invited Jesus onto their show, Penn might explain the miracle this way. I get it. I get it. Your disciples scour that crowd looking for food to feed all these people, and nobody admits to having anything except this precious, cute little boy who comes forward with five loaves and two fish. And you take this poultry offering as if that's going to feed 5,000 people, and you start dividing it up. And what you know, Jesus, is that someone in that crowd is going to think, well, I was saving the sandwich for later, but I could share it with the person next to me. And then someone else thinks, you know, I don't need to eat this whole apple. And another person thinks, well, this cheese that I have, I could share it with my group here. And then, before you know it, everybody is giving food to everyone else, and the people who thought they had so little actually have so much that there's 12 basketfuls left over. In short, Jesus, I'm saying what you did is you got people to share. That seems to me like a very reasonable possibility for how this miracle may have happened, especially for post-enlightenment folks like us. We tend to think very poorly of miracles. We want to figure out how it happened and make sure there's a scientific explanation for everything. But there are two things that set miracles apart from magic tricks. The first is the point of a miracle is not how they happen, it's what happens. And the second is that a magic trick is designed to be just that, a trick, an illusion, something that makes us feel foolish. That's why the show is called Fool Us. A miracle, on the other hand, is something that brings or restores life, that heals, that strengthens a community. Frederick Buechner says, a miracle is when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. A miracle is when one plus one equals a thousand. I would say a miracle is when we say there's not enough, and Jesus responds by taking what we bring, which is definitely not enough, 
and transforming it into more than enough. Over the course of 10 years as a hospital chaplain, I never saw an instantaneous snap-your-fingers kind of miracle. What I did see were countless slow miracles. Parents welcoming a healthy baby after multiple pregnancy losses. Kidneys that eventually began to work again after weeks on dialysis. A teen who finally meets their goal weight after months of treatment for anorexia. Or a child going home with their parents after years on a ventilator. In all these instances, you could probably look back in the medical chart and explain how they happened. But that didn't make them any less miraculous. That didn't mean the parents of these children felt any differently than the father of the prodigal son who said, my child was as good as dead and now they are alive again. The point of the miracle in our story for today, the what that happened, is that Jesus brought people together and Jesus fed them. No matter which approach you take, the purely miraculous or the fool us explanation, Jesus was the key factor in this miracle. If Jesus hadn't been there, the crowd never would have gathered. The narrator tells us that this large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. And then there are the disciples. And some people like to refer to the disciples as the duh disciples. They're always missing the point, failing to see what Jesus is doing, or just straight up ghosting him, leaving him on his own. But in today's story, we, we have to give these two a little credit. For his part, Philip understands the true scope of the need before them. He's someone who has taken attendance, who knows the cost of bread, and who knows exactly how much is left in budget line item 98912. And Andrew also does some things that we could commend. Despite the laughable size of this boy's lunch, he's brave. He speaks up. Maybe he has just a spark of faith that Jesus could do more with so little. He says, essentially, Jesus, I've looked around and we got about half a Lunchable to work with here. We can see that these two are really performing pretty well, probably as good as the disciples ever get. And yet, on their own, it's still not enough. Because whatever else happened in this story, Jesus happened. Jesus took what was clearly not enough, and in his hands, it was transformed. That expression, Jesus happened, comes from Sarah Miles, a self-described atheist, left-wing journalist, who one day finds herself walking into an Episcopal church. She walked in, took a chair, and tried not to catch anyone's eye. Then a man and a woman in long, tie-dyed robes stood and began chanting in harmony. There was no organ, no choir, no pulpit even. 
just the voices of the people with long silences in between. Sarah sang too, and then she says, it crossed my mind that this was ridiculous. When the woman announced, Jesus invites everyone to his table, they started moving up in this stately dance toward the table in the rotunda. We gathered around that table, and there was more singing and standing, and someone was putting a piece of fresh, crumbly bread in my hand, saying, this is the body of Christ. Someone was offering me a cup of wine, saying, this is the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened. Jesus happened to Sarah, and her life after that point was never the same. She went from being an atheist to being a reluctant worshiper in this congregation. Her experience of communion at that table led directly to her efforts to start a food pantry in the church. Her experience of being fed led her to want to feed others. From her years as a war correspondent, Sarah had a special understanding of what it meant to be hungry. From living in the community, she knew what a difference a food pantry would make. Perhaps God knew that food and feeding would be the pathway to a life of faith for her. But it was not easy. She had to meet with the chair of the church outreach committee, who explained that they would need more volunteers than they already had and more money to accomplish this. She met with the church staff, and their responses ranged from over my dead body to when hell freezes over. She had to appeal to congregation members who were worried that it was already hard enough to keep the church clean and that there really wasn't a sustainable plan in place. And all these responses could be boiled down to one simple objection. There's not enough. Still, Sarah was persistent. And despite the objections of not enough, the food pantry got off the ground. And to this day, I just checked this week, they still distribute food to more than 500 people each week. Over the years, the church volunteers have been joined by volunteers from the community. Those who used to receive food at the pantry now serve it to others. And rather than using the fellowship hall as their gathering space, they use their own sanctuary. The very table at which they receive communion is the table at which people in their community receive nourishing food week after week. Now there's a long explanation, a whole book in fact, for how this happened. But the heart of the matter is what happened. Jesus brought people together and Jesus fed people. Jesus happened. And the thing is, Jesus happens when there's not enough. Jesus happens when there's not enough. In order for these to be miracle stories, it really has to be that way. What we have, what we bring, we know it's not enough. There's not enough room in my heart for this grief. There's not enough passion behind solving 
climate change or poverty or gun violence. There's not enough help for our public schools. There's not enough compassion and support for trans kids. There's not enough love for this relationship to be saved. There's just not enough. And yet, and yet Jesus invites us, as we've seen these past few weeks, Jesus invites us to show up. Jesus invites us to be who we are. And Jesus invites us to bring what we have even when we know it's not enough. Jesus prompts us to walk into a hippie church for no reason, to share our meager lunch with someone else, to volunteer for the children's program or the youth program or Henry Marsh or to serve Meals on Wheels. Jesus invites us to speak up against injustice, to speak up for those whose voices are not being heard. When we show up in these ways and in so many more, when we respond to Jesus' invitation to bring what we have, we live lives that make space for Jesus to happen. And in Jesus' hands, we'll find the miraculous surprise that what we have, that who we are, is much, much more than enough. Amen.